Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 17th of May, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, we're recapping, I think, with a blustery Saturday. Uh, well, Saturday in Plymouth was blustery, but the Plymouth Live uh, newspaper decided to, and Plymouth Herald, Plymouth Live website, decided to uh, cover the peaceful anti-lockdown protests on Plymouth Hoe, one of many around the country and around the world. Uh, but they decided that the best way to do this was to handle this problem, was to arrive pretty much at the end when everybody had already left and the skies were blue and the rain had stopped. Uh, and uh, well, they got a photograph like this, which showed almost nobody there. Uh, and, and another one with a handful of people there. In fact, there were significantly more people uh, than, than that. Um, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't thousands of people by any means. Because no, but it was most, enough. Yeah, it was ab enough. absolutely was enough. Uh, most people had gone to, uh, to London, I think. Uh, but nonetheless, it was uh, an excellent day and a fantastic group of people we attended and uh, had uh, many, interesting many interesting conversations. conversations. Yes. And I think we'll also a big thank you to people who actually had travelled. Some people had travelled about three hours to come down to Plymouth in order to meet others and chat. Uh, and uh, that was very enjoyable. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, so that was a great day. Now, the BBC, of course, the main event was in London, but the, the BBC uh, had this to say about it. Yes, that's right. Absolutely nothing. Uh, but they did have stuff to say about uh, thousands protesting in London over Israel-Gaza violence. So I thought this was really interesting, particularly because in London, people actually bothered to walk up to the door of the BBC, some of them carrying UK column banners, uh, and they, uh, well, they were there in their thousands outside the BBC. Um, so let's just have a quick listen to what they were saying. So, David, uh, welcome to the program. That's quite incredible that despite the fact that so many people were outside their very door and shouting shame on you, they didn't really want to report that. <laughs> this is the problem with the BBC. You give them £5 billion and uh, you say, look, lads, you're going to have to be a, a, a convincing propaganda agency. And they say, well, for £5 million, I'm sure, you could, £5 billion, I'm sure we, can, we can manage that. And then they don't. Uh, they're just not credible. If they can't report that, uh, if they're in a situation where the BBC are the news, if their misinformation, if their fake news is the news, if their propaganda is part of the government assault on the people, uh, they become the news and they either report it or they become irrelevant. Um, yeah. I think we've got to add to that for overseas audience. If you're listening in from overseas, and you've still got the mistaken belief that the BBC is a truthful media outlet. Well, we've just shown that, of course, this is not the case. So you can't trust any single report that the BBC makes really from today on or yesterday. It was yesterday that those people really put the put the full evidence on the plate, I think. Um, so let's have a look at uh, what was going on in London. Plenty of people with uh, plenty of banners and placards. Uh, some uh, more white uh, uh, umbrellas, which is really fantastic to see. 
Um, some visions of dystopia uh, with uh, uh, a, a very famous, uh, uh, oh God, the, the name Wirt. has escaped me again, the name of the, the television series and the book, Margaret Atwood, of course, uh, it'll come back to me in a minute. Uh, even the children coming out, blowing the whistle uh, and uh, suggesting people look at the UK column for truth. That's uh, very nice. Ditch the BBC. Yes, yes there's the key words. Uh, and uh, well, T-shirts. Uh, well, this gentleman was very pleased because he just received his uh, T-shirt and was clearly proud to be wearing it. So we just wanted to recognise that. And and uh, in line with the protests, I'll just bring in this. The clip should just play a little bit, uh, but I was sent this this really wonderful clip, encouraged people to go and have a look at it uh, because it was a protest in Manchester where the very good-natured crowd suddenly turned right into the Arndale uh, shopping mall, much to the astonishment of people shopping. Oh, no, no, okay, it's not going to play now, but um, I encourage people to go and have a look at that because it clearly caught the police by surprise. One minute, the police had a big crowd following them, and the next minute, they were turning around as the crowd had disappeared into the shopping centre. Uh, <laughs> so that's well worth watching. Uh, this young lad had a very poignant message on the back of his uh, jacket. The vaccine killed my granny not our hoax, and that was uh, to Matt Hancock. Uh, this um, image meme was circulating around, drawing attention to all the various crimes that the uh, vaccine companies have been caught with in the past, although Johnson & Johnson's added into that lot. So there's some pretty truthful reporting here. So um, you, you've got to go to social media to get the uh, uh, the real facts of what's happening, Mike. Yes, uh, and David, uh, in uh, Edinburgh, uh, people were gathering as well, uh, but not just in the UK, as we said, worldwide as well. And actually, Phoenix, Arizona, that's uh, quite incredible. Yes, this was uh, a, a viewer sent this in from Phoenix, Arizona, and there's a UK column um, sign uh, in the sun of Phoenix. Yes. <laughs> so I just wonder whether that was a little seed I sowed 10 years ago or so when I was actually in Tucson, which is close enough. Um, now, uh, quite a number of people reporting that uh, teachers are being given information, uh, suggesting that they've got to be very, very careful about extremist content relating to COVID-19. Uh, and we have one example of this uh, here. This is from Education Scotland, David, uh, just by coincidence. Um, and uh, it says how extremists are using COVID-19 to promote disinformation, misinformation and conspiracy theories. So let's uh, just look at some def definitions. First of all, uh, what do the terms disinformation, misinformation and conspiracy theories mean? Well, disinformation, apparently, this describes fake or misleading stories created and shared deliberately, often by a writer who might have a financial or political motive. Uh, misinformation, on the other hand, is exactly the same, except it's from somebody who didn't intend to mislead. Uh, conspiracy theories are these offer a simplifying model for things that cannot be explained or easily understood. Uh, they typically involve an alternative explanation for an event or situation to those provided by governments uh, and official international bodies, sometimes suggesting a group, individual or organization is responsible for hiding information from the public. Does, does that mean the BBC itself is a conspiracy theory, Mike? Uh, it could be, or the MHRA. <laughs> I mean, the MHRA seems to be pretty good at hiding information from the public right. at the moment. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, 
What are the radicalization risks related to the impact of COVID-19? Well, apparently exposure to, to misleading and hateful content is a, a radicalization risk. Young people may have been exposed to fake stories or conspiracy theories about COVID-19, which attribute blame on minority groups. Uh, engagement with extremist individuals is another uh, risk. Uh, young people may have become exposed to or engaged with extremist organizations or individuals, especially online. And the third risk identified here is increased vulnerability to radicalization uh, because COVID-19 may have increased vulnerability to radicalization as children and young people may feel isolated, anxious, frustrated and angry. This could increase the resonance of intolerant messaging and appeal of extremist groups or individuals offering explanations for the crisis. Uh, and then it goes on to ask uh, what have been the extremist themes during the pandemic. Uh, and of course, the first one, as you would imagine, is anti-Semitic conspiracies blaming Jewish community for spreading the virus or suggesting that COVID-19 is a Jewish plot. I have to say, I have not seen that one. Uh, perhaps people in the chat box can provide me with links, but I haven't seen it. David? Well, we reported on it, Mike, right? Oh, did we? We reported on it. Yes, it was in an Israeli newspaper called Haaretz, and it was talking about the, the, the terrible thing of the uh, ultra-Orthodox community not getting vaccinated and attacking them in a way that Himmler himself would have, would have been proud of. Uh, but that's the only time we've seen it. We've certainly not seen it in Britain. Okay, uh, but uh, it's not just uh, a Jewish plot or anti-Semitist uh, uh, conspiracies. It's also claims that British Muslims have flouted social distancing rules to spread uh, COVID-19. Uh, narratives promoting anti-Chinese hatred, uh, dash, uh, dash, dash, whatever, uh, inspired narratives claiming that the pandemic is divine punishment for the West's sinful behaviours. Extreme right-wing conspiracies claiming that society is collapsing and that right-wing terrorism can accelerate its end through inciting social <laughs> conflict. Yeah. Yes, you're laughing, David. I mean, frankly, when you it's look at this crazy. list, I'm not clear that there's anybody being left out. So if bearing in mind the size of the population and, and the range of, of views here, I'm not clear who's left. No, no, but it's not just that. It's all garbage. Right? I mean, we've been reporting on this. We know this scene quite well. We know what's a legitimate uh, viewpoint. We know what's a bit kind of out there. None of this applies. This is, they've, they've made this up. Yes. Daesh. Yes, yes, they made the, the... What, what are they doing? This is, this is the, this is, this has been made up by someone who has apparently never been to Britain or Scotland. I mean, it's just a fantasy land. But, well, it is, but remember, this is being therefore pushed into children's heads. But anyway, uh, what can I do to support the young people I work with? Well, you've got to go to the government's website, the share checklist. You've got to go to the BBC. Uh, you've got to go to the likes of the National Literacy Trust. And the natural and the news literacy project. But and <laughs> there's a weakness there, Mike, isn't it? Because what if you go to the BBC and the BBC's just not reporting it? Uh, well, that, that's fine. That means they're not pushing out conspiracy theories. <laughs> if they're not reporting anything, then, right. you know, uh, David, briefly. Well, I, I just, I, very briefly, I love the fact that they talked about the children may be isolated, frustrated, or angry. They never mentioned the word fearful, the very thing they set out to create. We don't talk about that one. Uh, no, and we'll be coming on to that again a little bit later. Now, we have uh, a bit of a scoop here, David, I believe. Uh, this is from a serving, that should say serving, apologies for the typo in that, serving police officer from London, saying that the City of London police have instigated round-the-clock suicide patrols of the bridges over the Thames 
due to the increase in people taking or attempting to take their own lives. This is also being over offered out as overtime to officers. Now, David, I have to say, my understanding is that the walkways on the Tamar Bridge in Plymouth have been closed for this exact reason. So um, this seems to imply a fairly large problem. It does uh, imply it's a nationwide problem, uh, given that piece of information. And uh, we're seeing here the effect on the mental health of the nation of being locked in their own homes, being isolated from their friends and relatives, their support systems, and uh, being told to be afraid multiple times an hour every day of the last year. Yes. Um, okay, now, of course, uh, the UK column has set up a yellowcard.ukcolumn.org. That's the URL, a, a website to show the yellow card data from the MHRA. Um, and, uh, well, there's been an update to it this morning. Um, so, but before we get to the update, I just want to highlight this. This is the, uh, the main page uh, of the data, uh, COVID-19 vaccine analysis overview. Quite a few emails uh, since this was launched from people wondering why there's a difference in the number of total reports and the number of total reactions. So let's just... Uh... I was just going to say, my, my good time to draw people's attention to the latest data there you've got at the top, 1,143 deaths now, 786,350 adverse reactions. That's right. So what is the difference between total reports? Well, of course, uh, each report may have multiple reactions. So in this, in, uh, the latest is 167,141 reports and 622,176 uh, reactions for AstraZeneca alone. Um, and uh, part of the problem here is that uh, with the way that the data is provided by the MHRA, it's just, uh, in a sense, rubbish, uh, because you cannot associate uh, which uh, event created which reactions. Therefore, you can't see, for example, whether uh, there is a trend taking place with the groups of reactions that there might be. So if people have a, a clot, uh, or a heart-related problem and, and other side effects as well. You can't see that. Um, so that's why there's a difference between those numbers because uh, some of the reports will have more than one reaction associated with it. But uh, look, let's look at the change on the form. Uh, we have provided four checkboxes for each, each for, the, for each of the vaccines, and you can now choose to compare vaccines. So in this case, uh, I've chosen to compare AstraZeneca and Pfizer uh, by keeping them checked. And then we're going to uh, we're going to create we're going to have a look at cardiac disorders here. Um, the next thing is we've now we're now producing uh, the number of reactions and the number of fatalities for each of the categories. So for ca cardiac disorders, um, we have a total of eight thousand three hundred and eighty reactions and a total of one hundred and forty-seven fatalities. Uh, and then as you scroll down and you can see the uh, each subtable within that. Uh, we're showing the number of reactions and fatalities for each of the subgroups, in this case, heart, heart failures, NEC. Um, and uh, uh, you can see a comparison, therefore, between uh, the effect of AstraZeneca and the effect of Pfizer. So uh, I hope that uh, makes this uh, little website more useful than it was last week. I think it is. David, uh, you got any views? Yeah, just one, one point that's been made by, by a viewer uh, this week. The, the differences between the vaccine reactions, um, depending on the, the vaccine that's, that, that you're looking at, depending on, upon the brand, is very significant. Because the government's argument is, well, these are mostly old people, and old people die all the time, and there's nothing to see here, there's no link. 
Well, if that was the case, then you would be seeing the same background information for, from both uh, both vaccines. But you're not. You're seeing uh, different uh, different numbers, different absolute values, and different collections of problems with AstraZeneca and, and with Pfizer. So that gives a huge clue that uh, it is not the government narrative, but it is in fact the vaccines um, that are the issue, and that the data that's being collected here, which uh, is is perhaps if uh, MHRA are correct, only 10% of the real totals, uh, is uh, r representative of real problems uh, in the country. Uh, well, I think we're going to uh, see a bit more on that a little bit later, but uh, the ability to compare like that is a really useful addition. Well, it's, it's excellent, Mike, and um, as some people are talking about in our chat box at the moment, the fact that the MHRA, the government's organisation responsible for collecting and analysing this data is not doing its job. A lot of questions got to be asked. Are they hiding the true effects, the true adverse effects of the vaccines? My, my personal opinion is that it's become very clear that is exactly what's happening. So these UK column statistics and the database and the search engine is now a vital component for the British public. So I hope people are going to share this as widely as they can. Uh, so David, the question is, what's the BBC saying about adverse reactions? And we're starting off here with uh, uh, menstrual issues. And uh, their headline is here, COVID vaccine period changes could be a short time, short term side effect. What they're saying in that headline is they haven't got a clue. Yes, well, they, they start off by discussing. You'll be, you'll be, you may, you may be told about adverse reactions. You may be told about adverse reactions as you go for the jab, um, but they'll be, they'll talk about you're having a sore arm or maybe a bit of a headache or, or maybe a bit of redness. But they won't, they, they won't have on their list uh, anything to do with uh, uh, problems with menstrual cycles, increased period pain, or anything else affecting uh, uh, female um, uh, uh, reproduction, and. They then go on to say, yes, there's a, this kind of releasing gradually into, into the public's uh, domain some of the evidence that there are problems. And then they're trying to reassure everyone. Oh, but it, it doesn't, uh, it's only going to be short term and don't you worry about it. And uh, the, uh, the effects don't affect um, fertility, they say. Uh, but uh, just in the same way that they can't know whether it's a short term side effect or not. Uh, they can't know what effect it's going to have on fertility. Um, so they're saying here immune cells play a role in building up, maintaining and breaking down the, the lining of the uterus, which thickens to prepare for a pregnancy and then sheds in the form of a period if the egg is not fertilized. After vaccination, lots of chemical signals which have the potential to affect immune cells are circulating around the body. Uh, this could cause the womb lining to shed uh, and lead to spotting uh, on earlier periods. Uh, Dr. Mail says they chose somebody called Dr. Mail for this. They, well, they, 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 chose, they chose Dr. Mail, um, but they, what they've done there is they've identified a valid mechanism that could lead to problems, and they then have to roll back. So the, the, next, the next slide goes on to, to, to draw back from that. Uh, yeah, so it says no link to miscarriage. This doesn't mean there is any link to miscarriages through pregnancy. Uh, different processes maintain the womb lining, including the presence of the placenta, the organ linking the fetus to its mother's blood supply. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but right very, very early on in this, uh, going back to the middle of last year, uh, there was some concern that the spike protein, uh, which is uh, being used uh, as the mechanism for generating uh, claimed uh, immunity from the vaccines, uh, there was some concern from, from certain people that that spike protein uh, response 
may have a pretty negative effect on the placenta. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, so Dr. Mayo assures everyone that there's no higher risk of pregnancy loss. So there's, not, there's no risk. There's no higher risk. It's everything's fine. And it's all temporary. The fluid HPV, uh, HPV vaccines uh, also affect menstrual cycle temporarily, but there are no long-term side effects. And there are masses of evidence that don't affect fertility. So everything's fine. But then if we go to the yellow card uh, website of the UK column, because you can, can't really find it on the government's version, uh, you find that there are a hundred and what's that, 106 total uh, spontaneous abortions. And, and the reporting of that three fatalities, I, I'm not clear, is that three fatalities in the mothers? Because it can't be, they can't be referring to the children there, so I'm not absolutely sure, but I, I imagine that that means that three, three women have been killed through this process. Uh, it certainly doesn't look like um, a reassuring evidence base to me. And, and David, something we, we have to say to the audience is that the, these um, irregularities in the data, this is not coming as a result of the UK column. This is a result of the data which is um, logged and held by the MHRA in the first place. And yes, it is often the case that you cannot tell exactly who has died. Is it the mother that's died? Is it the child that's died? And it appears to be that in quite a lot of the spontaneous abortions, the fact that a child has died is not logged as a death at all. I think that's, I think that's correct. Uh, but David, I suppose we've got to give a, uh, a warning on this particular image because it's not, it's not the most pleasant, but uh, uh, the text here says, I got a vax because of my diabetes. Pfizer one uh, had a reaction after the first dose. When I got the second again, I got flu-like symptoms. Then five days later, I woke up and my foot was inflamed. Uh, and uh, one very swollen toe. They couldn't save it. Uh, said the vaccine might have weakened my immune response, letting it, the infection go crazy. Uh, they also gave me an antibiotic, which reduced my kidney function by 30% and told me after. Uh, they didn't know if it would ever get better. That's why I was in for two weeks. Um, so that's quite an unpleasant reaction. It is. And I mean, we're just, this is just one of, um, one of the reports we're getting. We're getting uh, all sorts of reports of, of these adverse reactions, um, uh, large and small, some of them extremely serious, some of them survivable, not maybe life-changing, changing, but extremely unpleasant. Um, and it doesn't just, uh, I mean, the Queen's relative treated for blood clots following second COVID jab is the headline in the Metro. Yes, this is this is interesting because the people who are pushing this, the, the establishment that pushed this, usually buy their own narrative. So they will undertake, um, for the most part, uh, the, the, the treatments and the processes that they advocate. And they are affected like everybody else. Just because you support the government policy, just because you buy the lies, doesn't mean the lies don't harm you. It doesn't mean the policy is not harmful. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're seeing it affecting um, people from all strands of society. Uh, and the key point is here, as we want to remind everybody once again, the clinical trials are still in progress. Well, this is a, this is a little um, uh, bit of information from the States. And uh, this is a clinical trial on uh, multiple candidates for RNA vaccine. And we see here the, the primary completion date is October this year. 
and the study completion date is April 2023. So there is no doubt that these vaccines are still under trial, they're still being tested. This is this one of the things that this study looks at is safety. That process is ongoing um, and we are all being vaccinated, or most of us are, in the interim. Uh, now, in the United States, uh, well, first of all, we'll just mention the fact that this headline in Global Research uses the word experimental. Now, Brian's going to be talking about this in a minute. Uh, I don't think it's unfair to call these uh, vaccines experimental, bearing in mind the clinical trials are still in progress. But the headline here is that the number of deaths in the United States is now 4,434. Yes, and the significance here is that exceeds, that's, that's the number of deaths in the last five months. Um, since COVID vaccine rollout um, commenced. That exceeds the total number of vaccine deaths reported to the VAERS system since it was founded 21 years ago. So you have, um, you, you have something which is absolutely unprecedented. I mean, the, the level of harm that all of, all of the systems that they put in place to warn when vaccine reactions were going badly, when people were being harmed, all of these systems have been, what was the phrase they used in 9-11 Commission report, blinking red for some considerable time. And nobody is taking any notice. It's all just being it's swept under the carpet. There's no link. No, wait a minute. This is, this is an order of magnitude or more worse than we have ever seen. More, more deaths reported in five months than in 21 years. And the response is, well, there's no, there's no causal link. Nothing's been proved. We're fine. This is the response from the state. It is not credible, it does not tally with the figures, and it shows um, a callous disregard for the people. But in the meantime, it's going to be left to the United States, to the states themselves, rather than a federal decision about whether vaccines be made mandatory or not. Now, this is a very, this is a very interesting article here because the, the CDC and the American government have decided that they cannot force through and remember, American states still have a good degree and governors still have a good degree of independence and local control. They cannot force through a nationwide uh, vaccine mandate, principally because I think they would never get it through the courts. It's illegal. So what they're suggesting by this sort of dog whistle approach is that individual organisations will, will, will have their own. So if you've got a school or a university or a shop or an office, you, you make up your mind, and if you think you should have a vaccine mandate, on you go. The fact that it's illegal and unconstitutional, the CDC aren't really worried about that. That's going to be your problem later on. If you get sued, that's your problem. It's not going to be the CDC's. But they are encouraging this creeping piecemeal approach to removing our liberty. They're not any longer trying to do it in a centralised approach in the state, because that's going, that's going badly. They're now trying to use the fear they've instilled in people throughout the country to get um, thousands and thousands of actors removing our liberty locally and a piece at a time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but having said all that, uh, this was what President Joe Biden was pushing out. The rule is simple. Get vaccinated or wear a mask until you do. The choice is yours. Uh, that seems pretty definitive. Yes. I wonder what the uh, constitutional position of that, that tweet is, or indeed um, what he really thinks he's doing, right? Because <laughs> he, you know, he's, now, he's now issuing medical instructions for every member of the public in the United States of America. 
that would be totalitarian, wouldn't it? Uh, you would think so. But is he thinking properly from all of the film clips I've seen? I don't think uh, Mr. Biden is thinking properly for a variety of reasons. Been wearing his mask too long. Been wearing his mask too long. Let's move on to an organisation which surely must rank alongside the BBC in its uh, sheer crassness. And that, of course, is full fact. Uh, now, we've spoken about this organisation over several years now, but it puts itself forward for fighting bad information. It says, of course, that it's a team of independent fact checkers and campaigners who find, expose and counter the harm that bad information does. So bad information needs to go into that Scottish government leaflet because I don't think bad information was listed. But um, thank you to the people that picked up on this. Um, what they found was full fact talking about the Nuremberg Code and COVID-19 vaccines. I encourage people to go and read it because you can see how bad this is for yourself. But we thought we'd help people out a little bit. So we just pull out this bit. This claim that the COVID-19 vaccines are experimental is simply not true and something we've corrected multiple times. The three COVID vaccines currently given temporary authorization for use in the UK have been shown to be safe and effective in large-scale clinical trials. Uh, David, I'm just going to come back to you briefly because you showed the, the American paper there clearly talking about these as experimental vaccines. Uh, there was a shortened trial period to bring them in. We know that the ongoing trial um, is, well, it's ongoing. So their experimental status must surely stand. And for full fact to try and counter the scientific opinion on this is simply, well, it's shocking. I, I think full fact should change the name to full semantics. They're trying to play with definitions. They're trying to say, well, it's a, it's a, experimental's not quite the right word. But the facts are, as you outlined them, that the safety studies are ongoing. It's in a stage three trial now. So if we're doing a drug trial, that would make it experimental, but maybe not. Maybe full fact don't like the word. Um, they can't suggest another one that describes the situation, um, but they don't like that one. But they're trying to conceal, for this approach to semantics, they're trying to conceal the fact that the safety trials are ongoing. The safety trials are ongoing, indeed, yeah. So we just bring this one in. I mean, this is going back to May 2020, but what I'm doing here is emphasising the fact that everything around these vaccines was experimental. So the American Journal of Bioethics here, potential implications of testing an experimental mRNA-based vaccine during an emerging infectious disease pandemic. Uh, this one here, and apologies, I've cut off the... Uh, the the, uh, the actual source, but I was taken with a headline, Pfizer says experimental COVID-19 vaccine is more than 90% effective. So that was a, a quote from Pfizer. That was the 9th of November, 2020. 2nd of December, 2020 here, Reuters. And this article is about the EU criticising what it describes as a hasty UK approval of the COVID-19 vaccine. So you're vaccinating now millions of people was something that you've been hasty in concocting up your approval. Who's to blame? Well, this lady's got to stand in uh, right at the front. The CEO of MHR should be MHRA. That's June Rain. And in that article, she's quoted as saying, our progress has been totally dependent on the availability of data in our rolling review of the vaccines and our rigorous assessment and independent advice we've received. 
So the key there is the rolling review, but we know that the MHRA is not conducting a rolling review of its own vaccine adverse effect or react, uh, reaction data. So the vaccines must remain experimental because there's been no review of the data to actually correct that situation. And uh, we're also going to just reinforce in people's minds that if you look at NHS documentation, and here we've got the COVID-19 vaccine program standard operating procedure, management of COVID-19 vaccination, clinical incidents and inquiries dated the 26th of February this year. Uh, what it says straight off is up at the top. Let's just bring that up on screen. COVID-19 vaccines are black triangle medicines. MHRA encourages the reporting of all suspected adverse reactions, side effects, to newer drugs and vaccines, which are denoted by the black triangle uh, symbol. All suspected adverse reactions, even minor, should be reported via, via the MHRA yellow card scheme. Now, of course, Mike, we know for a fact that all suspected adverse reactions are not being reported because uh, NHS staff and GPs are not doing that. Uh, it goes on to say an MHRA yellow card should be routine completed to report all acute clinical events where symptom onset is within 72 hours of immunisation or any other events that are potentially related to the administration of the vaccine. So none of this is happening. Uh, some data is being collected, but the MHRA isn't assessing that data, so it's not conducting a rolling review of those experimental um, those experimental vaccines. So if we come back to the article here, uh, the Nuremberg bit comes up where we've got a quote from a so-called expert. It says the Nuremberg Code is about the active experimentation on humans for the most part during some sort of clinical trial of some description. So when we talk about Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines, we're out of the auspices of the Nuremberg Code because this is a product that has been trialed with appropriate ethics in place and has been approved, and that is now in production and being used globally. So full fact here, deliberately twisting the facts in order to mislead the public, but the uh, icing on the cake for them is down here. Informed consent is still required for those receiving the COVID-19 or any other vaccine, but Professor Emma Cave, Professor of Healthcare Law at Durham University, explained that the need for this does not come from the Nuremberg Code. Well, of course, the Nuremberg Code, they're trying to under, undermine by saying that the vaccines are not experimental, which is certainly not true. And here they're talking about informed consent. But what full fact uh, knows is that the UK public cannot make an informed choice because they're not being told of the yellow card effects. And the latest I'm putting on the screen again, 786, uh, 786,315 vaccine adverse effects and 1,143 deaths with no investigation whatsoever uh, by the MHRA. So we just pop in this one because um, uh, full fact is also trying to undermine the yellow card data itself. So what little data has been collected, um, full fact says that uh, the MHRA states that just because an adverse incident occurs does not mean that it's caused by a vaccination. But of course, full fact doesn't tell the public that the MHRA is not investigating its own data to establish the actual number 
of real substantiated vaccine adverse effects. Uh, David, we've got to the stage in the UK column news where we're starting to smile as we report this, because what, what we're talking about is so outrageous that it should be obvious to every single member of the UK public if they were told. You, you mentioned their full fact or full semantics. They, they, they're talking about, they, they, they quoted an expert, the expert said that uh, consent has nothing to do with the Nuremberg Code. I just looked it up because I thought, I, I don't, that's not how I remember it. The Nuremberg Code, item one, sentence one, reads, the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. I think full fact needs to try harder. Well, they might start by learning to read. That might help. Well, <laughs> whether they can read or not, I don't know. But they clearly don't investigate. And then they produce articles which they claim to be factual, but are actually very misleading. They're very carefully crafted articles. Um, this is what happens if you do a little bit of searching on Full Facts website about yellow cards. It comes up with these two articles. There's no evidence that people are dying from the COVID-19 vaccine, apparently. And the bot, so that's the top one. And the bottom one there, COVID-19 vaccines haven't caused 460 deaths. That was as being reported back on the 9th of March. But there's been no investigation by MHRA, all full fact. So this is a completely misleading statement. So I'm putting up on, here, on screen here that full fact is spinning the facts uh, to suggest that the yellow card data has, has been investigated because quite clearly it hasn't. And I'm going to ask people to go and visit their site to look at the people producing this appalling and misleading reporting. Key is Will Moy, the chief executive, who we've had many words about in his relationship with the state. Um, we've got this lady, Mavan Babakar, deputy chief executive and chief op operating officer. Now, she worked with the team that went on to win Google's AI for social good impact challenge. And since uh, Google is one of the funders, I think we can clearly say these people are not independent. Here's Mr. Andy Dudfield, head of automated fact checking. So maybe it's their algorithms that don't work, Mike. They don't actually check with a human being. The algorithms don't work. But he had a previous uh, role at the BBC. Maybe that's why the BBC's fact checking doesn't work. I don't know. We've got Ross Hake, head of communications. Uh, who was he working for? Behavioural Insights team, the very organisation which has made the British public frightened in order to get them to believe this dross. And uh, Glenn Tarman here, head of policy and advocacy. Uh, well, he's responsible for securing changes from those in government, parliaments, the media, internet companies and beyond that influence people's exposure to bad information. I suggest he starts doing a bit of work on his own organisation, Full Fact. Uh, but if you get down to the bottom, he's ex-Thomson Reuters. So um, can you trust any of these people? I'm not sure. No, you didn't have the picture of Ben there. That's unfortunate. Well, I know it is a bit unfortunate. So we're just going to say that if you go and have a look at the funders, you'll find it includes Facebook and Google, which is not a good start. So we're just going to say, once again, Full Fact appears to, in, uh, to equal faux fact. Yes, indeed. Um, well, David, uh, that takes us to a, a little quote from, here from Aldous Huxley. 
Yes, so he. this is from a speech um, given in uh, UC Berkeley 1962, where he was a professor at the time. Uh, the Ford, uh, a professor for a, a chair sponsored by the Ford Foundation. And he was talking about um, the uh, final revolution, the ultimate revolution. He writes, uh, he said, there will be in the next generation or so a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing dictatorship without tears, so, uh, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies. And he continues, uh, so that people will in, in fact have their liberties taken away from them, but they will rather enjoy it because they will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing, uh, or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods. And this seems to be the final revolution. So there we have it. Uh, and we're living straight... here. To... <laughs> we're living we here, are, apparently. We are living it, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. Uh, well, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And also do share material on the various social media platforms. People starting to repost our uh, news programs on uh, uh, various YouTube channels, which is a good thing to see. So hopefully those will shortly begin to gain traction. Um, but uh, David, you've got some new material coming out. Uh, yes, uh, the the three nurses, one of which uh, viewers will recognise, Lisa Brackenridge. Um, and uh, these are the three nurses who spoke at Holyrood uh, on the 1st of May. Uh, so we have premiering tonight, 8 o'clock. Uh, their address to the crowd there, uh, which was excellent and passionate and uh, exceptionally well informed. Uh, so hopefully people will join us uh, live at 8 o'clock for that tonight. Okay, and that's on the Northern Exposure YouTube channel. We'll also have it on the UK Column website as well. And then another one, uh, Christine, uh, go ahead. Padgham. Uh, yeah. Christine Padgham, she's, she's uh, from Inform Scotland. Uh, she's a physicist. She has been looking at the figures, the stats of COVID. She gave an excellent and actually a, a really vital speech about where the reality of, of, the, uh, of, of the records, the statistics that are coming out of the government do not match uh, the narrative, do not match the fear. Um, and this this is absolutely vital information. That one's already published on uh, on the Northern Exposure website. Um, an excellent speech, and hopefully within the next uh, few days, I'll be interviewing Christine at, at greater length, and we'll look into these matters in more detail. Okay. Uh, right, quick advert. Later on this evening on the UK Column website, you'll be able to get into this uh, video interview on whether vaccines are safe. And we'll be looking at the tragic death of uh, former sergeant, a uh, police sergeant with the Greater Manchester Police, Peter John Meadows, who died after a vaccine. Now, this is a two hour interview. It's got two essential parts. I'm going to encourage our viewers to stick with it. The first part talks about what happened. And the second part is where we do a deeper analysis on what happened and what are the key points that people need to understand. Uh, around the whole event. So this is really starting to take those uh, statistics that uh, Mike has shown from the MHRA yellow card information, where we see a printed one, which equals a death. This is two hours showing what one of those uh, digits on the MHRA data really involves for the families concerned. 
And I'll add that uh, the UK column at the moment is well behind with the number of reports that we've had. So we've still got many of these reports to get out and we're doing our best uh, with the time that we've got available. So I just remind you that this will be up on the UK column website and uh, it will also a little bit later be out via BitChute. Okay. Uh, well, what else have we got to report? This one was very interesting. Somebody said, thank you for your work. They've recently subscribed. Um, it said that a workmate who is a Sikh Indian and a lovely guy talking about a mosque in South or London that he was attending last week where there was a bus coming from the NHS and it was asking for undocumented people to be given the vaccine. So if you couldn't prove you'd had the vaccine, they were very keen to give you the jab. And uh, what I was interested with this report is I've already had several other reports from within the Muslim community saying that it's almost become dangerous to attend a mosque because the moment you walk through the door, somebody's trying to stick a needle in you. So it's quite clear that the NHS is really going for uh, those groups in order to try and uh, give them the vaccine with, of course, not telling them the true risks. Um, this one uh, is one of a number of, of, of emails we've had where people have had bad experiences now trying to get treatment. So the person says, uh, I was to make an appointment for a follow-up bowel screening examination and told I needed to do a COVID test three days prior to this. So I told him I was unwilling to do it, but will wear a mask while in hospital. I was then asked if I was fully vaccinated. I told them no, I was waiting. I was told by the NHS appointment person that it was approved and that they themselves had received the jabs and she insisted it was all approved. So essentially the NHS just trying to push people into the vaccinated system and also people saying that they're being told by the NHS unless they comply with COVID tests, for example, or masks, they will not be receiving medical treatment. Uh, now, we've got a correction to make from uh, Friday's programme. Apologies for the mistake, but uh, uh, this was uh, put up on Friday. Summer is cancelled. Matt Hancock tells this morning that lavish holidays abroad won't be possible. Uh, but unfortunately, in fact, that came from uh, the 12th of May 2020, not 2021. But uh, nonetheless, the story is pretty much the same. So uh, while that mistake was made, and many of you pointed that out, and thanks very much to the people that did, uh, the, the, the narrative continues to, uh, to, to head in that direction. So let's have a look at uh, what the BBC was pushing out uh, uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, summer holiday demand shifts to autumn amid travel uncertainty. Well, has the situation changed in the last couple of weeks? Uh, well, not really. Uncertainty around summer holiday plans after 20,000 allowed to enter the UK from India because, of course, the India variant is very much the, going to be the driver. It is already becoming the driver for maybe not moving out of lockdown quite so quickly. So uh, from today, of course, we're supposed to be allowed to travel abroad. Uh, but the main uh, summer season starts when the schools get off, which is going to be towards the end of July. So the question is, are we still going to be able to fly uh, by then? Well, certainly one uh, um, travel company has decided that it's too risky. So this is on the beach. They have suspended sales of summer holidays amid travel uncertainty. Um, Matt Hancock, though, saying, don't worry, uh, you can go or maybe not, but uh, your NHS app is going to be able to prove your vaccine status from today. Um, so that's all good stuff. Um, so uh, so we do apologise for the, the mistake on Friday. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I think, David, uh, that what we're likely to see 
uh, over this summer period is pretty much what we saw last year as well. People being told they can go on holiday. And then while they're in some foreign country, suddenly the rules will change uh, and there'll be a mad scramble to get back before new quarantine legislation comes in. And really what this whole uncertainty around whether people are allowed to go on international holidays or not uh, is designed basically to, be a, to, to, to build a chilling effect on travel uh, because travel is something which is really frowned upon uh, under the new, shall we say, Great Reset regime. Well, travel, as you say, Mike, broadens mind. And under the Great Reset, we don't want any of that, do we? Uh, I was also seeing uh, one English actor who had been away abroad, um, having had to get tested in the UK before he went and uh, tested before he came back. Um, and in both cases was charged several hundred pounds. He, can, he, he, he did the maths and said, well, if I was, if I was a, an ordinary working man with a, a family of wife and two kids and I did that trip, I would have to pay an extra £2,000 for COVID tests in order to get my summer holiday completely unaffordable for the ordinary uh, family. Um, he was making that point and it's just another example of, uh, we will, of the fact that we're not going to be allowed to travel. Travel is being clamped down upon beyond any level of reason and there doesn't seem to be any uh, rational end to it. Uh, no. And uh, well, the headline today in the eye, new freedoms come with a health warning. So again, uh, we're pressing head, and at least the mainstream media is pressing head with this idea that uh, some limited freedoms coming back are new freedoms uh, because, you know, they're new. Uh, but let's have a look at what they're saying here. Hugs and indoor socialising are back as lockdown easing takes effect. Har Boris Johnson happy to lift restrictions on daily life as planned, but urges Heavy dose of caution amid fears that Indian variant of coronavirus is spreading across UK. Cinemas, pubs and restaurants welcome indoor customers and overnight stays permitted. Uh, travel to green list countries allowed, but Health Secretary warns against trips to Greece and Spain as Labour calls for continued ban on foreign holidays. They're playing the same mind games again this year that they played last year uh, with yes, you can do it, no, you can't. Uh, yes, it's safe, no, it isn't. Uh, it's all designed to generate fear uh, and make people uncertain in their positions. Yes, and the use of the witchcraft to say these are these are new freedoms, they're old freedoms, it's old lang science for old time's sake. Uh, and uh, they, they start with hugging. That was interesting because I saw over the weekend the BBC had a guide to how to hug safely. That was particularly amusing. Well, well my goodness, um... Did we get it right on Saturday? Because there were certain people who hugged us on Saturday. I hope they've read the BBC guide. I, I could have been exposed to all sorts of things. Well, indeed. Indeed. Now, uh, on Friday, oh, uh, sorry, we'll start off uh, a week or so ago because Brian, of course, was talking about which Liscard Hospital, was it you yes. were talking about? Yeah. Uh, being absolutely uh, rammed with people in A&E departments, uh, ambulances queued outside uh, the hospital. And not a tweet from the uh, mainstream press on this. Uh, well, in fact, uh, we mentioned on Friday that uh, we now knew for certain that the same situation was taking place in Derriford Hospital in Plymouth. And then on Sunday, uh, Derriford Hospital pushed this out on Twitter. Our emergency de department is extremely bus busy right now with our staff caring for many acutely unwell patients. Uh, patients with the greatest clinical need have to be our priority. If you have an urgent care need that is not an emergency, please use one of the centres below. Uh, now, 
why are people going to A&E? Uh, part of it, for sure, is the fact that uh, GP surgeries in England, certainly, and other parts of the UK uh, have decided that uh, they're not going to open their doors to people. So it's practically impossible to get uh, an actual appointment with the GP at the moment. So people are having to go to the 101 call uh, centre line uh, and some of the advice that they're being given is to go to A&E. So that is part of the pressure. But I don't, don't think it explains it all by any means. So who are these acutely unwell patients? Maybe we can go to the mainstream press to find out. Well, here's Plymouth Live again. Uh, and they published an article because of that tweet. Uh, Derriford Hospital in Plymouth's emergency department extremely busy. Uh, and as you read down this, you find out nothing at all about why uh, the people, the numbers of people that are going to uh, A&E at Derriford are there. Um, we have asked the question, Brian has asked the question last week, is this because of uh, adverse vaccine adverse reactions? We suspect it is, uh, but we haven't had any definitive statement from anybody about it. And I think that's pretty telling. Pretty telling, but I think we need to ask our audience for as much help as you can give us to find out what's actually going on inside the NHS at the moment. So if you're working in the NHS or you've got friends or colleagues who work in the NHS, what is actually happening? And significant, really, that the NHS not talking about this. It's not describing what these people are people are itself. So is this another layer, layer of cover-up? Yes. Um, sarcasm alert, David. Uh, good news. Uh, universal basic income is going to be tested in Wales. Uh, what are the BBC saying here? The idea is that this would cover the basic cost of living. First Minister Mark Drakeford said the pilot would see whether the promises the basic income holds out are genuinely delivered in people's lives. But the Conservatives said Wales should not become a petri dish for failed left-wing policies. Mr. Drakeford said uh, a pilot would need to be carefully designed to make sure that it's genuinely adding income for the group of people uh, we're able to work with. Uh, he said it will have to be a pilot because we don't have all the powers in our own hands to do it on our own. Uh, it'll have to be carefully crafted to make sure that it's affordable and it does it within its powers, within the powers available to the Senate. Uh, and uh, we need to make an early start on designing the pilot to make sure that we have the best chance of operating a pilot that allows us to draw the conclusions from it that, would we, that we would all want to see. In other words, they have to be very careful to design a pilot which produces the results, which justifies the policy, which allows them to implement the policy because that's what they want to see, right? I hope that's clear. Uh, but the point here is, of course, uh, the issue with UBI, or at least there are many issues with UBI. I'm sure David will mention a few in a minute. But the one issue that I want to highlight, of course, is that if you're reliant on a universal basic income from the government, um, then you are subject to certain rules and terms and conditions uh, for accessing it. Uh, and so just consider that in the context of this. This is a website called GoHenry. And I'm going to thank my sister for reminding me about this. Um, this is all about helping your kids learn money skills for life. It gives your children a visa card, a, a, a debit card, I presume. But the key thing here is uh, it comes with certain terms and conditions. So, for example, it means that every adult in a specific area, oh, sorry, it means that uh, uh, it means that you can top up your child's card and set spending rules so that you as an adult can stay in charge and in control. It sets tasks and chores for your child to complete to earn extra money. Uh, you decide where it can be used in shops, online or at cash machines, you as the adult, the parent. Uh, Real-time notifications tell the adult or the parent when and where your child is spending. 
uh, instant block and unblock cards. So you can instantly block and unblock cards at any time uh, in case the card gets lost or stolen. Uh, and of course, you can spend and withdraw money overseas for free, and that helps your children learn all about foreign currencies and exchange rates. But the key point here is that this is an embryonic social credit system. It is training our children to, to accept social credit in the sense that, for example, uh, the uh, adult, in this case, their parent, but you, they could be perceived as, let's make it the government, and instead of children, we've got adults. Uh, you know, government controls when, uh, when uh, the card is, is uh, spending rules and all this kind of stuff, that government set tasks and chores uh, to decide whether you get your universal basic income, uh, that government decides when the card can be used in shops online or at cash machines, uh, the government gets real-time notifications about when and where you are spending your money and so on. When you actually put it in that context, uh, it brings us to a very different place. Um, I think, David, the main priority for us at the moment, or one of the main priorities, has got to be in helping our children to understand what's being done to them rather than using these types of schemes to indoctrinate them because it's the next generation that is in real danger here. Yes, indeed. And, and affordability is one of the problems with the scheme, but it's not the overriding one. Uh, freedom is the overriding one. These ideas uh, I, I ex examined in, in an old UK column article called Masquerade, Paper Pound Notes on Parade, which I wrote uh, back in January 20, uh, 2017. Um, and essentially, that's still my position on it. The justification for this, given the best justification for this, given on BBC site and elsewhere, is the absolutely appalling marginal tax rate that, for, that, that faces people if they are uh, in, in, in uh, poverty, if you're in the bottom 10, 15% of the income structure in the, in the UK, and then you start to do a little bit better and you have uh, benefits removed, the effective marginal tax rate is 75%, which is an enormous disincentive to work. And that is, of course, obscene. Um, so it's saying, well, we'll do something about that. So it's the errors in the existing welfare state system that justify this scheme. And then the, the, the analysis goes no further. Our analysis does, and I encourage people to look at that old article. Um, okay, thank you for that, David. Now, uh, The Telegraph finally caught up 14 months later. Hey, hey. Uh, and a uh, headline, use of fear to control behavior in COVID crisis was totalitarian admits scientists. Yes, they got there in the end. And indeed, not only have the Telegraph got there, but Spy B themselves, the scientists involved, have eventually struggled and kind of brought themselves to say, well, this wasn't really a very good idea. Members, that's right, members of the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviour, Spy B, expressed regret about the tactics in a new book about the role of psychology in the government's COVID-19 response. Spy B warned in March last year that ministers needed to increase, quote, the perceived level of personal threat, end quote, from COVID-19 because, quote, a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. Uh, Gavin Morgan, a psychologist and team, said clearly, using fear as a means of control is not ethical. Well, they know that now. That's good. Using fear smacks of totalitarianism. wonder where he got that word from. Uh, and it's not an ethical stance for any modern government. By nature, I'm an optimistic person, but all of this has given me a more pessimistic view of people. By people, he presumably means his colleagues on the SPI-B committee. But uh, yeah, there we go. That was a remarkable uh, admission 
by Spy B in the, uh, via the Telegraph. And um, we were, as you said there, um, ahead of them by uh, just over a year. Yes. So this is our slide from... Um, 11th of May, uh, 2020. 11th of May. Uh, um, with that very quote um, and uh, highlighting the danger uh, of the, the government response um, and the, the degree of uh, threat that we're trying to encourage us uh, to, to fear and to feel. Uh, and I think, uh, Mike, we've got a little, a little clip from what well, we said a year ago. Well, just before we show that, I think you... Yeah, I, I wanted to say, David, I, I think that they are they're being uh, very crafty in this uh, Telegraph article because I don't think it's anything about being totalitarian. What they did was criminal. They unleashed psychology on the nation that they knew would harm people's mental health. And I think that if a full and proper investigation was done, we would find that people committed suicide as a result of their policies. And there's no doubt that members of that team, not all of them, some members of that team knew full well what they were doing. So I think their behaviour was criminal and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with calling it totalitarian. And they should be brought into a court in front of a jury and we should have a lot of, we should we should have the lot of them in a court, led of course by uh, Mr. Halpin, Dr. Halpin of the Behavioural Insights team himself. Um, so let's just uh, quickly have a look at a 30 second clip from a year ago. I'm struggling to see how this is not a direct psychological attack on everybody in this country. It is, Mike. It is a direct psychological attack. And if you look at the number of charities and organisations saying that we've got uh, an increasing mental health uh, problem in this country, people are stressed, uh, people are, some of them, in suicidal position, this is the British government using applied behavioural psychology inside the COVID science group to make people frightened so that it can put its agenda in place. Well, that was pretty clear. Yes, so that was the, that was the UK Com report uh, a year ago, and uh, they they've kind of caught up. Have we, uh, we time for a second a second clip from yes, that, Mike? Yes, yes, quickly. Yes, let's have a look at this second one. And what is the result? that the population of UK is to be kept in their houses and the whole of UK industry is to be shut down, producing the worst economic uh, decline in 300 years. Mike, if this wasn't real, you would say, I can't believe this, but this is their well, own document. Well, it is their own document and we can see the effects of it because of course that document is dated the 22nd of March. We're now in the, uh, coming up, up to the second week of May and, and uh, we, we've seen the effects of this. We've seen the stories that appeared, appeared in the press. We've seen the, the, the inflammatory headlines, the clickbaity headlines, the headlines designed to instill fear. Uh, David, to my mind, this goes beyond just being dangerous. This is a criminal act. It's utterly totalitarian because now everything you think has been manipulated by the government. It's ruled by fear, not by reason. Right? It's by fear. Um, and the, the, the idea we're using, we're setting neighbours against one another in order to control people is 
deeply sinister. It makes more sense of the BBC report I saw last week, uh, which said to snitch or not to snitch, and was a discussion on the pros and cons of reporting your neighbour for breaking COVID-19 guidelines. Yes. So there we have it. So yes, totalitarian criminal and uh, you were talking back then a, a year ago, Mike, about the effects that it was having on people's mental health. And we were reporting today about suicide watches on bridges. So it's clearly still happening. Yeah, yeah but uh, just to pull out another one of the, the graphics, this is uh, all about using the media to increase the sense of personal threat. It's not just Spybee that needs to be in court here uh, because the, the mainstream press has been a willing uh, participant in this, an extremely willing participant in this. Um, uh, but uh, yes, where do we, how do we, <laughs> where do we go from this point? Where, well, how we, do we get this public, the public has got to be made aware. It's going to take more than one t Daily Telegraph article, which, which might allow the Daily Telegraph to say, oh, but we, we published about it. Uh, but it's going to require more than that to, uh, to to help people understand the scale of the psychological operation that's actually been run on them in the last 14 months. And, and the other thing, Mike, is that they've got to focus on the people who did it. It's not enough to say it was the SAGE team or the Behavioural Insights team. You've got to name the actual people responsible and start off with Halpin from the Behavioural Insights team. They knew back in, uh, in 2010 what they were doing because in their document, Mindspace, they talked about the fact that the public could turn on the government once they understood what was actually being done. So we need these people to be as named individuals and they need to be brought forward to answer as an individual, not under the so-called safety net of the Behavioural Insights team or SAGE or SPY B. Um, okay, David, uh, let's head over to Israel. Yes, um, so we th there was a brief report on Friday concerning the, the ongoing violence uh, in Israel, all across Israel now, and in Gaza. Um, and uh, that was only a kind of three-minute kind of placeholder. So I thought we should look at this in, in some more detail today. Um, so uh, to start off here, I have an article from Haaretz. And so this gives an idea of the degree of uh, fire coming from Gaza into Israel, just so that we've got some proportion as to what what the, the, the sort of casualties are and people understand the degree of um, of threat facing the Israeli population. We'll come to the, 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 the situation in Gaza in a moment. Uh, so the, the article here from Haaretz, Gaza rocket fire in Tel Aviv claims the life of a 55-year-old man thrown into the street. Um, and it lists here... Uh, 10 victims, so there have been a, a total of 10 fatalities in Israel due to the rocket fire, including this little lad here who was only five years old. So that, that's the, the, the scale of what's coming, um, uh, incoming fire from Gaza towards, uh, towards Israel. Uh, this is ongoing. This is a, a, a report from last night. Um, rocket sirens continue to blare throughout the night in Ashkelon and Beersheba. These are uh, two, uh, uh, two towns. Ashkelon's a, a, a mixed Jewish and Arab town, um, and Beersheba's a Jewish town, uh, both of which are targeted by rocket fire from Gaza. Uh, so that's, that's the situation in terms of um, fire coming from Gaza towards Israel. Um, um, 
getting a, a viewpoint from inside Gaza is a little more difficult, but we have here a, an ongoing and live blog called the Palestine Chronicle. Uh, so they're reporting hundreds killed and wounded in Gaza across Palestine as Israel attacks continue. So they're talking about a huge bombardment and we've seen it's both airstrikes and artillery. Uh, and we've seen uh, entire, um, entire buildings demolished. We've seen uh, the building which actually housed the Associated Press and Al Jazeera has been targeted and demolished. Um, uh, there was a warning given, so it was evacuated, but that, that building's gone too. So we've got a very heavy bombardment of Gaza. I've got a, a short, I think this is maybe a video clip, it just gives us an idea of the scale of, of the destruction that's happening in Gaza. So just a, a quick clip there that gives some impression of, of the nature of the sort of heavy ordnance that's, that's flying into this built-up area uh, and with, um, with the inevitable consequences. Now, the, the rocket fire from Gaza to Israel is, is, is much cruder. It's much, uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, the uh, explosive payload, it's, it's uh, much, much smaller. Uh, still, as we saw earlier, capable of killing, and it's killed 10 people and, and injured around 100. But here's a, here's a, a case from Ashkelon, where there was a, a direct hit from a rocket on a, a synagogue. Um, uh, but the synagogue, you see here, the hole in the wall of the synagogue. So that's, that, that gives you an idea of the sort of scale of the damage, and the sort of explosive power for the ordnance that's coming in uh, from Gaza. Um, the synagogue was up and running uh, two hours later and, and uh, no one was uh, hurt or injured in that particular attack. Um, but obviously they could have been. But you, you see that there's a very, there is a difference in scale in terms of ordnance. Um, one advanced military, one much, uh, uh, a much cruder um, uh, process of firing um, unguided rockets uh, at, at, at built-up areas, carrying small payloads of... Um, uh, of explosive and shrapnel, so that's that's the, the the nature of what's happening in terms of uh, in terms of the military part of it. But the military part of it is actually only one of two stories, and it's 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 really the lesser of the two, because what's happened in simultaneously with this has been a great deal of street violence within Israel. So this is within the the Arab population, which is what some 20, 25 percent of Israel is is is. Um, Palestinian Arab population. Um, generally, they have been, they have lived um, um, peacefully uh, with their neighbours for most of the time since um, since the state of Israel uh, was established. Um, and the position of the Arabs, when I've spoken to them, um, has been. Um, they feel somewhat conflicted about it because they realise there's there's institutional prejudice against them. They're not treated the same in terms of investment, in terms of education, in terms of roads and infrastructure and things like this. But they still feel fortunate to be, or they did when I spoke to them, still feel fortunate to be within Israel, seeing that they had more opportunities than in the Arab countries around about one of the, the, the uh, contradictions of the situation. Now, that relatively harmonious situation 
always had some friction in it, but relatively harmonious situation seems to be breaking down and we're getting, we're getting outbreaks of extremely nasty street violence uh, across many of the mixed towns in Israel. Um, and uh, this has is, this is, um, caused many injuries, some deaths, and really the, 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 the police in Israel were struggling to cope with this. I think we've got maybe another slide. Um, you want this one? Uh, well, this, this, well, yes. So he, here we, well, here we see this is this is a, a car ramming attack in in Jerusalem, um, where uh, the attacker was shot by the police. He, he he rammed the car into a police checkpoint to try and use the car as as a weapon. So you see that. So you've got this. This is in East Jerusalem. So there's this kind of low grade unarmed. Um, terror type operation happening as well. There's a bit of threat from that. But uh, the next slide shows the nature of the violence in um, Arab Jewish um, mixed towns and, and cities. And this has happened throughout Israel. Um, it's, um, and it's, it's really caught the police by surprise. They've, they've struggled to cope. The, the number of outbreaks of violence, uh, and the scale of it has really caught the police off guard. There's talk of putting the army into the towns within Israel to keep the peace. That's how bad it is. Uh, this next one here from the Times of Israel uh, is a is an Arab man who was um, uh, uh, who was pulled. He was on the way to the, to the to the beach to get some exercise. He was pulled from his car by a, a Jewish mob, and and beaten very severely. He's very lucky to be alive, and and to his great credit, he's calling for for peace and noting that we're all human beings. Uh, we could do with a few more like him, I would say. And of course, the, the nature of this violence is it's, it's, it's extremist group within the, within the Jewish community and extremist group within the Arab community, and they're both, uh, they're both active and, um, and, and, and aggressing against the, uh, against the, pe the people they, they view as being different. There was another situation of a hotel in the mixed town of, of, of Acre, uh, which was wrecked by, by an Arab mob, which were going around and they were targeting all of the Jewish businesses and, and destroying them. And, and the exact mirror of that was visible with a Jewish mob in another town elsewhere in the country. So that's the nature of the, the, the destruction or the disintegration of many aspects of, of, of society within Israel. And that's actually a, f a far greater consequence, I would suggest, than the continuation of the the, the strategic violence from Hamas and the tactical violence from the IDF, which is something we've seen um, repeated year after year uh, without any sign of any improvement. Uh, we have here, we had some, there was some feedback from, from people watching pa um, yourself and Patrick on Friday. Uh, some felt that that piece had, um, had been maybe uh, un, been unfair and, and, and one-sided in favour of the Palestinian viewpoint here. Um, to to give some, um, and, and, they've, and suggested, uh, the viewers uh, responding suggested some uh, evidence um, to give a different viewpoint. I've picked one piece up here, and this is from a pastor who is um, from a, a, a Christian, but presumably a Christian Zionist, um, a church within Jerusalem. So his viewpoint is he's not Jewish and he's, he doesn't have um, a, 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 
a partisan or a, a sectarian view of this, but his viewpoint is very much pro the, the, the pro Israel um, in in generally how he views the geopolitical situation. But he makes some important points, and I think it's worth um, listening to what he has to say, and then maybe having a, a quick discussion after about what was correct and what was maybe omitted uh, from this analysis. Shalom. My name is Meno Kalisher. I serve as a pastor in Jerusalem Assembly House of Redemption. I work together with Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. There are some news concerning Israel in the current events. We all hear right now and see on the news the missiles coming from Gaza toward Israel. But it not started with that. We all know the name Sheikh Jarrah. It all started there, at least, at the recent problem. What is Sheikh Jarrah? It's a group of few apartments, few small buildings that belong to someone. Some of it, some of the apartments belong to a Jewish owner. Basically, it's a real estate dispute, private dispute. It was brought to the Supreme Court, who saw all the details, all the facts, and ruled. It belongs to the Jewish owner. Whoa, that was enough for the Jewish, for the Arabs community to start riots. When the Supreme Court ruled for them, it's great. When the Supreme Court decided they are wrong, then the world need to change the Israeli Supreme Court. That was the issue. They started riots against this decision. Well, there was a small problem. It was in the middle of the Ramadan celebrations. Dozens of thousands of Arab Muslims are coming to the Al-Aqsa Mosque to celebrate. They joined the problem. Why? Because it's a real estate issue. And both sides believe it is God-given property for me. It's a religious one. So, besides the families at Sheikh Jarrah, the thousands of Muslims who came for the celebration joined them. They went to the Lakta mountain, the mosque, started fire, shoot firecracks against the police. Some trees got on fire because of them, not because of the police. And that was enough for the Hamas in Gaza to decide, I'm with you, and I'm the one who is holding the Palestinian cause and flag. How do they do that? They shoot Israel, that's all. So they start, started to shoot Israel in order to show the Palestinians that they are the ones who carry the Palestinian cause. Don't forget, about a month ago, there should have been an election on the Arab side, on the Gaza band, to choose between Hamas and the PLO. The PLO, who rules, decided to cancel the elections. The Hamas wants to show its muscle. How do they do that? They shoot Israel. That's very common. That's very normal in their side. So the Hamas is doing so, regardless of the price it will cause him. The idea is they hate Israel more than they love themselves. So they shoot Israel directly at Jerusalem. That was enough for Israel to start a war. It's not a joke. You wouldn't sit quiet if someone will shoot your capital city. So Israel started to shoot them back and started to attack all their strategical places where they hold missiles to shoot at us. The rest you see in the news. So, when will Israel stop? Well, that's a 
political situation. We hope it will end soon. But from Israel's point of view, we will continue until Hamas will raise up his hand or at least to beg us to stop in order to guarantee another few months or years quietly. That's all situation. So, is that round will finish or solve the issue? Absolutely not. Remember, we are in a religious war. So how do you pray for us? Pray for our safety, truly. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray really for salvation. Pray for us to use every opportunity to share the gospel so people will be changed. That's what we ask. So uh, this is this is a, a, a Christian but very pro-Israel um, viewpoint. Uh, I would say so I hand it over to you, gentlemen. Points that you made that I thought were very insightful. Uh, it's about elections. It's about um, domestic politics within each community as much as it's about anything else, and it's about religious war. It, the the background to this is real real estate dispute. Yes, but this is against a background of of continued encroachment by Jewish money interests against Arab-owned property, which is seen as an assault by the Arab community. Um, it's also against the, the, the land in question had been confiscated from the Jewish owner it, illegally by Jordan between 1948 and 1967 and returned to him, as far as I can tell, correctly and rightly returned to the original Jewish owner. But of course, the flip side of that is Arabs dispossessed in 1948 cannot get the same um, uh, rights or recompense or the property restored and therefore the Supreme Court, the Israeli Supreme Court that that pastor was referring to, is not, a, is not an arbiter which is, which is fair and reasonable in treating everyone equally. There's an inherent inequality and an inherent injustice in the entire system, which is one of the, uh, one of the uh, drivers for ongoing trouble, just one of them. But to understand it, we've got different communities uh, with, with long, long-standing enmities. We have elections within those communities. We have uh, domestic politics within those communities. And we have um, a, a re religious feeling which is extremely strong at times and in and, and certain parts extremely inflamed within those communities. That's driving the ongoing violence. Um, and uh, his, his conclusion at the end is that what we need is people to be changed. I agree with that. Okay. I, I mean, I, th I think, David, uh, um, I think that it's very, very difficult for anybody outside of the country. Well, in fact, it's probably difficult for people inside the country as well to be honest about what's actually going on there. I mean, I think uh, the, the, the kind of uh, media coverage of what was going on in Northern Ireland for 30 years and the kind of uh, uh, narratives that were being played out outside the country and inside the country, and none of them actually was ever uh, really accurate. Um, so it's, it's very, very difficult to, to uh, uh, get an accurate picture of exactly what's going on, because apart from anything else, it's based on, what is it, 60, 70, 80 years now of history um, and, uh, and, and people fighting each other for that amount of time. Uh, the truth gets lost in that what, what, time. Yeah. Yeah, what, what, what about a century in now? Yes. Uh, community violence of this type has, has been going on for about 100 years. And, uh, yeah, truth is lost. Um, it is difficult. I mean, I, I've, I've got friends in Israel, 
But if I ask if I ask them for a report, I will get a report from the from the perspective of their community, which which would not be any more likely to be insightful than the sort of thing we get from looking broadly at the press that's coming out of the area, uh, because. Uh, you're dealing with these, and you're dealing with entrenched views, and you're dealing with a particular worldview, and those those worldviews are quite incompatible, uh, you know, across the various communities in Israel. Uh, there is, uh, I mean, I, as you know, I've been to Jerusalem a lot. Jerusalem's generally a very peaceful town because it's a religious town, um, but there's a tension in it all the time. And when you're in it, you don't actually notice this until you leave. You go down to Tel Aviv or Jaffa or somewhere on the coast, and all of a sudden you realise you've breathed out, you've relaxed, and you, there's a there's a tension the whole time in Jerusalem. Be, and I think it's because it's a powder keg. Uh, you've got flashpoints like uh, uh, like Temple Mount, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, and these are, are flashpoints that generate violence on a on a pretty regular basis mostly it's it's quite low grade and it's almost formulaic and it's contained and it doesn't escalate but it always has the potential to become something much much worse yeah david thank you very much for taking us through that i'm just going to say that uh, what was interesting for uk column was after the short report on israel on last friday we got uh, we got quite a number of emails, uh, most of them from people calling themselves Christian. But I've got to say, several of those emails were very harsh in what they had to say, more or less, if you don't report the right things, we're not going to support you. Well, as we've demonstrated, there's a lot more knowledge in, in the UK column about what's happening in Israel than we normally put out. Why are we interested in what happens in Israel and the Middle East? Because, of course, much of world geopolitics centers on the Middle East. But it's a very delicate subject. And I think I was slightly saddened that some people came back at us so hard for actually daring to speak about what's happening. Um, I think we've demonstrated that we've got a little bit more knowledge than we normally put out. Um, perhaps we can include some more of that knowledge in future UK column news programmes. But I think it's unfortunate if we've got an audience which says very quickly, if you don't say what we want to hear, we're not supporting you. I, I, think, I think we're above that, really. And um, let's, see, let's see how the reporting goes in the future. David. Yeah, just to finish, um, if anyone buys any of the one-sided narratives, our side has every aspect of right on its side, and the other side is the personification of evil. If anyone buys that, they're being had. Right? That's not the nature of the situation on the ground. Uh, there's much more to see. Um, there's much more to understand. And that type of, of sectarian approach is only the sort of thing that sees um, entirely innocent people pulled out of cars and beaten up because they're in the wrong community. Don't be part of it. Don't be, don't be part of that hatred. Find out more. Be different. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to need to leave it there. We're well over time. So uh, we'll be back uh, in a few minutes uh, as quickly as you can on the on the UK column live stream for anybody uh, with some extra. Yeah, I just got one picture I wanted to put on slide. I know the clock's 
clocks there at, at the end of the uh, at the end of the group. We can get through. I just thought it was so wonderful. Um, let's just pop this up. This was part of the London demonstrations where a bus driver stopped and then came to the door of his vehicle to interact with the people coming by. And I watched this clip for some times because the people were interacting so well. They were shaking his hand and, and there was lots of good-natured dialogue between these people. And if you want a, an example of, of how a good demonstration should go, this was it because the power was all in the smiling faces of these people and what a spectrum across society. So I just wanted to add that. The other thing I wanted to do is just to put up the light newspaper, which was being handed out at the weekend. If you haven't seen this uh, excellent newspaper and the articles, then uh, just uh, start to ask or have a look on online and you'll find it. But we'd like to recognize all the hard work that's going into producing that. So well done. Um, so as quickly as possible, we'll be back on the uh, live stream for some extra and otherwise back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. So,